0: worry, and fear. Another question you ought to ask yourself, is God mightier than the problems? Or are these problems too big that God can't even handle them? Is He mightier than the problems? Well, we would say, yeah, duh. All right, then why are we worrying and, fear, and full of fear? I think all we need to do is look at the maniac of Gadara, that guy had some problems, didn't he? He was wailing and crying and screaming, possessed of devils, cutting himself in chains. I like, That guy had some problems. And what happened when Jesus came along? He was found sitting clothed in his right mind. I think he's mightier than the problem's. Another question you ought to ask yourself is, does he have the answer to my questions? Is God sovereign over these circumstances? Yes. Is he mightier than the problems? Yes. Does he have the answer to the questions? Yes. According to the word of God, the answer is yes, yes, and yes. He is the solution. He is the answer. So why do we live in worry and fear? The point that I'm making here is that he is the answer. His word is the solution. And we've got to utilize the resources that God has already given to us, provided. And he said, I'll keep you in perfect peace. Lord willing, I'm going to start a series of messages here real soon on finding calm in a chaotic world. We're going to use Philippians 4, verses 6 through 8 or so as our text, our thesis, and see what the Word of God teaches us. God made a promise to us that He would do this, but there's a part that we've got to play in order to find the promise. So, Lord willing, we'll start that very soon. But let me just say this in concluding this thought. Anxiety comes with life, friend. That's part of the human condition. But it should not dominate our life. Amen? Jesus knew what was about to go down. Jesus knew the disciples were going to be afraid. They were going to be alone. They were going to be confused. And instead of thinking about himself in his last hours, he wasn't concerned with himself. But he was teaching, and he was bringing comfort to his disciples because he knew their need. That's the wisdom of the Lord. Secondly, what else did he know? He knew the time, number one, but he also knew the traitor. Look at verse 2. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into his heart, into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus knew the traitor. He knew the time. He knew the traitor. Among the twelve was one, one who looked like the others. He walked with them, he ate with them. He witnessed the miracles of Jesus with them. He heard the words that Jesus said. He was taught of Jesus. He endured the storms that the disciples went through. And the Bible says that he even carried the bag or the purse. He was the treasurer of the group, if you will. And by all accounts, you would look at the life of Judas, and you might even think that Judas held a more prominent position than some of the other disciples if nothing else, for the fact that a lot more is mentioned about him than other disciples. But the fact is, is that Judas had part with them from the very beginning. Judas had the appearance of being a devoted and honest servant of the Lord. He carried the money with him. But inwardly, Judas was a man who was filled with greed, he was filled with contempt, he was filled with wickedness, and the Bible says that Judas was a thief. Judas had lived among the followers of Christ, but Judas did not have a personal relationship with Christ. Judas had never trusted Him as His personal Savior. And Jesus was well aware of the heart of Judas. He knew who would betray Him. And you know what? Let me make this application here, friend, because Jesus still sees a whole lot more than the outward appearance. He sees the heart. John chapter 10 and verse 14 Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known of mine. Jesus knows who are his. He's aware of the condition of everyone's heart. He's aware of the condition of your heart today. And I've said this, if I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times. Good, Bible-believing, doctrinally strong Baptist churches so often are filled, filled with people who look like, who talk like, who walk like, all the others, but inside there is no life. And what's the reason for that? So often the reason is because, you know, at one point they made a profession of faith and and now they've got this image that they have to keep up and they have to make everybody see that I'm a Christian, but inside they're full of chaos. Inside they're in turmoil because they won't admit what they really are. And how many people are going to die and go to hell from Baptist pews? Because there's no life inside. But we've got an image we've got to keep up. A name. A bunch of Judases. Jesus was well aware of Judas's heart. He's aware of your heart condition today. We might deceive others, but we can never deceive God. And we might say, how is this possible for Judas? How was it possible for him to walk among the disciples and live in the life that he lived? And in the end, I mean, being right next to the very Son of God and in the end betray him. You say, how is that possible? But I would equally say, how is it possible for folks to come to church for years and years and years and never, ever truly be saved? How is it possible? Well, here's why it's possible. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. To the point that we can't even know how wicked it is. Who can know it? Listen, I just heard the testimony of a lady who recently got saved, a member of a good Baptist church for 42 years. And you know what she said? Her testimony was, after 42 years, I finally got rid of the religion. You know what? Baptist religion, if that's what it is, is no different than Catholic religion. It's no different than any other religion. Religion's going to take you to hell. We can live a life that, that, that looks good on the outside, but all it is is religion. Where's the relationship? And she said, after 42 years, I finally got rid of the religion. If she knows she's saved, I say, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. So the question I'm asking now is How's your heart? How's your heart? Do you know for sure you're saved? Or are you like a Judas putting on a shovel? Well, the Lord knows. He knew the time. He knew the traitor. And the third thing is that He knew the truth. Verse 3 says, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He was come from God and went to God. You know, there was never a greater injustice in the world than the crucifixion of jesus christ really there wasn't he was holy sinless the son of god and yet he was condemned to die a man who was without guilt a man who was without shame in fact a vile convicted murderer was released and jesus Was crucified. There was no greater injustice ever done in this world than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it was a great injustice, the the worst one ever committed, but you know what? It wasn't in vain. It was God's plan from the very beginning. It's why Jesus came into this world. He was born to die for transgression of, of sinners. He knew that this was the Father's will, He knew that this was for the redemption of mankind. He knew John 3:16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son He left the splendor of heaven he came robed in flesh to purchase our redemption. And Jesus knew that by submitting to the cross, what he was doing was fulfilling God the Father's will. And I'm saying to you, if you're saved today and you know the Lord, think on this. It's an amazing thing that he came at all. And he came for you. You ought to thank him and praise him. Knowing what was in store, he laid down his life for you. Amen. He knew the truth. Secondly, I want you to look at verses 4 and 5. So we saw the wisdom of Jesus. He knew the time. He knew the traitor. He knew the truth. But I want you to see the work of Jesus now. Verse 4 says, He rises from supper and laid aside His garments and took a towel and girded Himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Here what we find is a beautiful expression of the Lord's love for those who followed him. The Bible says that Jesus washed their feet. Now, there's some people who practice foot washing today. I think it's just a ritual It's a lot of for show in a lot of cases and not actually an act of humility that the Lord was demonstrating here. I can't speak for everyone, but that's usually the impression that it leaves. Foot washing is certainly not something that is required of the Lord. But it was the principle. It was the principle that Jesus was trying to teach his disciples that we need to learn about. First of all, we understand here that what Jesus did was an act of humility. It was an act of humility. Verse four tells us that He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. Now we can just read over those verses and not really understand the impact of them. The Bible says, "From supper, He laid aside his garments, he took a towel and he girded himself. Now, in that context and in that culture, rising from the dinner table, the Bible is telling us and demonstrating for us that Jesus prepared to humble himself before his disciples. The events described here would have been something that would have been done by a servant, this was not uh, the master's job. This, what he was doing here was something that a servant would do. The phrase laying aside his garment is a reference to how he took off his outer robe. And the word that's translated as towel, because he took a towel, the word that's translated as towel refers to the linen towel or the apron that a servant would put on as he's about to do some work. Okay, so follow that. He took The Bible says here that he laid aside his garments. He took off his outer robe. He took a towel. And it was, it was, the, it was the apron or the, the linen that the servant would take and put on himself as he's about to serve the master. In this case, as we would imagine it in our minds, evidently Jesus took this And he girded himself. He tied it about his waist. The Bible tells us that Jesus literally, literally took upon him the form of a servant. Does it not? In Philippians 2 and verse 7. And I think this is another demonstration of the fact that as Jesus knelt down to do what a servant's job was, He was taking on himself the form of a servant. And he then begins to wash each of the disciples' feet, wiping them with the towel that he had girded about himself. I think it's of note in verses 6 and 7, and we'll talk more about verses 6 and 7 next time. We don't have the time to do it today. But it's of note that the Bible says, Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. And what's interesting is that years later, Peter himself would write in 1 Peter 5.5 to be clothed with humility. And the idiom that's used in 1 Peter 5.5 was of how a servant would gird himself with an apron, both as preparation for work and also as a symbol of servitude. It was a symbol of humility. And what I'm saying to you here is that Jesus teaches a profound lesson in humility. Can you imagine the thoughts of the disciples? What this job that he's doing was a servant's job. And here they see the Christ, their Master, the Bread of Life, the Resurrection, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the One that was the One! The King of Glory bowing down to wash their feet. What a lesson in humility. You can understand Peter's reaction a little bit here. Lord, you're washing my feet? And then when Jesus says, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. And then Peter's like, okay, okay, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head too. All of me. You can kind of understand his reaction a little bit. And we'll talk about what those verses mean. There's some real interesting stuff in those verses. But the point, the main point for now is that Jesus is teaching a lesson in humility. And let me make this application. There is nobody who is better than another. There is nobody who is better than another. You know what? Sometimes pastors can can feel like they're better than other people. They have a position. They study the Word of God. They know. And sometimes pastors can come across like, hey, I'm better than you. And I wouldn't say I'm better than you, but boy, the way that I treat you and the way that I speak to you sure says that I think I'm better than you. There's nobody who's better than another. I think sometimes that happens in churches with church members, too, when little cliques start to form. Now, there's nothing wrong with peer groups. The fact is, is that sometimes you're not going to really get along or connect with every single person the way that you do with some others. And there's differences in generations. And so sometimes there are definitely peer groups. That's okay. But you know what's not okay? Okay clicks in a church. That's not okay. Where, like in the church at Corinth, for example, there were groups of people, and some said, I'm of Paul, some said, I'm of Paulus. I like Pastor Paul better than I like Pastor Paul. Oh, well, I'm still way better than all of you because I'm of Jesus. (laughs) I'm super spiritual. That's what was happening in the church at Corinth. And Paul said, you're carnal, you're ungodly, you're wicked. It's carnal to think that way. But you know what? That's what happens in churches sometimes. Little cliques form. And others aren't really welcome into our clique. Because we just don't, we don't see eye to eye. We don't get along. And so they're not welcome into our clique. As if somehow our circle of friends is better than yours. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? I don't think that that's happening in this church. I'm just, this is the text. So we're just going to go with it. Or an application to it. Okay? All I'm saying is this. Jesus teaches us something here. An act of humility that nobody is better than another. And here's the Almighty. Here's the King who's bowing to serve. That's the kind of heart attitude that we ought to have one to another. Because Jesus says to his disciples, do you know what, I, do you know what I've done to you? Do you, know, do you know what I'm trying to teach you here? I'm leaving you an example. I've washed your feet. You should wash each other's feet. That's not relegated just to foot washing, friend. It's an act of service and humility. We ought to have the heart to serve one another. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, we see an act of consistency. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Just a note here. There's no distinction that anybody has left out in this. He washed the disciples' feet. All of them all of their feet. It might not have been difficult to wash John's feet because the Bible says that John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. They were close. John laid on his bosom. Amen? What about Peter? Was it hard to wash Peter's feet? Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him just in a little while. Peter didn't even know that, but Jesus did. What about Thomas? Jesus knew that Thomas would doubt him What about Judas? He knew that Judas was about to betray him. And knowing all of that, we see a humble servant washing all their feet. Not one is left out. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords, and what it tells us that no matter what the heart condition, Jesus still had time for everyone. He came as a sacrifice for all. He was consistent in his work. Jesus doesn't see people the way that we see people. He doesn't see a worthless addict. He doesn't see an abusive spouse. He doesn't see a convicted felon. He doesn't see someone who we think is just a jerk. He doesn't see that. He sees people souls. Some in need of salvation, some in need of restoration, some in need of comfort. And all I'm saying to you is this, Jesus gave us an example, and our labor for the Lord and our service for the Lord also ought to be consistent without prejudice and without favor. Lord, help me. Amen. We're going to need to stop here for today. We're running out of time. We've talked about the wisdom of Jesus. We've talked about the work of Jesus. Next time we're going to talk about the lessons that Jesus teaches to His disciples in all of this. But in closing, just let me point you to verse 12 and verse 14. Verse 12 says, So after He had washed their feet... And had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? And then, verse 14, If then your Lord and if I, then your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. There were two reasons why Jesus chooses this activity, washing their feet. Two reasons. Because of proud hearts because of dirty feet the command that jesus gives here is for them to wash one another's feet he says as i have done to you you need to do this for each other but the command to do for one another what christ had done for them wasn't confined just to washing feet friend we don't practice that in our culture the principle is this. It's simply about humbling ourselves and serving somebody else. That's the principle. And if we, if, we, if we don't see this, then we've missed the whole point of it all, that Jesus left us an example to be humble and to be servants of others. Christianity is so much more than just some sort of creed or some sort of, uh, uh, you know, some sort of thing that we hold on paper. Christianity involves a lifestyle to be like Jesus Christ. So question. If that's the command of the Lord and the example that he left his disciples and the application is for us as well to be humble and to serve other people. Question, how can you model humility then to those around you? Let's make it practical. How can you model humility? Well, there's probably lots of ways, but you know what? You could do something like this. What's the one job that no one likes in your office? What's the one thing on a job site that nobody likes to do? What's the thing in your household that absolutely nobody likes to do. You know what? You can practice at humbling yourself and do it just for the sake of doing it for others. Do it and reap the blessings of servanthood. Jesus said, If you know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Another question, How is your attitude toward humbly serving other people? Verse 15, Jesus says, For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. In other words, Jesus says, here's the towel. You follow that? Here's the towel. You do this to others. So who is the Lord going to bring into your life this week? that you can serve. What happens is we don't ever go into a week thinking that. We only think about my week. When we ought to go into the week thinking, you know what? Who can I serve today? Who can I serve this week so that I can be a blessing to them, so that I can serve my Savior? Humble, serving others. That's the example. That Jesus left. Now, next week we'll get into the rest of these verses. Like I said, there's some interesting stuff in here. Great passage of scripture, very, very applicable for me and you. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, would you use your word again in our lives? And we do pray for a humble response. Maybe there are some who are not saved and they've been burdened in their soul over their own need of salvation, but they've never moved. Maybe there's some who have a profession, but in their heart they know something's missing. Lord, I pray that there would be a humble response to the Word of God today, that there would be those who respond to your call and would be saved. Lord, for the church member, the saved individual, May we learn the lessons of humility again. And how do we practically apply that? Lord, to see the truth that no one's better than another one and we ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Here is God in the flesh kneeling down to serve, to do a servant's job. Lord, I pray that we'd take it to heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand to our feet, heads bowed. And I-